Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Tone Talk with Mark Uzanski and Dave Friedman. We've got a special co-host tonight, special guest co-host with Pete Thorne, demo extraordinaire on YouTube. And also we've got a legendary producer, engineer, Bob Rock. Uh, in case you don't know, Bob's worked with Loverboy, Bon Jovi, Metallica, Brian Adams, Motley Crue, Michael Buble, David Lee Roth. Um, the list goes on. Uh, we're going to ask him a lot about that tonight. Uh, so without further ado, Bob, how are you? I'm doing great. Really good. Awesome, man. Awesome. On a, on, uh, on a, on a four month holiday that I wasn't expecting as we <laughs> all were not expecting. It's like yeah, I've told people I've never had four months, four months off in my life since I started at Little Mountain in 76. So. This is quite wow. different, but it's very cool. I get to play all my guitars and use my amps. So there you go. That's, guy. that's a good thing. You have plenty of guitars and amps, I assume. Uh, yeah, I've been collecting, you know, basically from the first time I made any money. You know, I've been obsessed with it for everything for many, many years since I was a young kid, you know. Yeah. Do you keep a lot of your guitars and amps there? And I know you're in your studio in, uh, or you're at your place in Hawaii. Do you have a, a wide selection of stuff that you keep there? Yeah, when when I had an operational studio, I don't have that now. It's because of the budgets and everything with all the artists that I work with. It just, it didn't work anymore. It was too hard to kind of keep going. But so when I first started here, I didn't know I was going to record as much as I did. So. I ended up bringing everything I owned here, so pretty much it's it's here. But now I've I've ended up taking a lot of stuff back to the mainland. So there's a lot of stuff in Huntington Beach where I work with Dexter in the Offspring. But a lot of my stuff is at the warehouse in Vancouver, Brian Adams Studio, which is where I do most of my work, and a phenomenal studio. So I've got a lot of my stuff. I was going to ask you about that, if that's there. your primary place where you work in Vancouver now, since you work so much there at Little Mountain and stuff, which is no longer there. So now it's the warehouse, eh? Yeah, the, basically the, the the guys that built and teched Little Mountain, uh, uh, John Vertasek and Ron Obvious, uh, they they ended up, Brian wanted, bought a building and he put a studio in and they designed it and built it and so it's the same people basically and randy staub and mike fraser myself we all work there it's like it's it's the perfect studio it's got the most amazing neve uh the one that was commissioned there's three uh three consoles uh the last ones that neve made for george martin mm -hmm. and he's got one there and then it's got ssls it's got four rooms it's got all the mics it's got everything it's an incredible room so wow. and of course the, the yeah in vancouver the budgets and stuff uh, because of the Canadian dollar, it's a great place to record. So I do as much work there as I can. Everybody that goes there just just can't believe how great it is. So, and it's got windows in it. It's got windows. Got, <laughs> light, it's got right? sunlight and stuff, which is very cool. Yeah, it's not unusual. a cave. So it's, right. unusual for a studio. It's great to work in. That's yeah, cool. I was reading an interview with Brian about it, and he was mentioning yeah. the windows and the kitchens, how all the studios have kitchens, and so there's great, uh, you know, you can bring cooks in and stuff. And oh, great yeah. Meat. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. So we've got we're we're going to get to a lot of questions. We've got some super chat questions already. I see. Um, we'll get to those. I promise. Uh, real soon. Um, I'm just going to dive right in, Bob, and jump into a question I have because uh, most of my favorite albums have been from me. You know, through the '80s, you've done, you've worked on. So uh, I have a question about Loverboy uh, right off the bat and their guitar tones because uh, you know, turn me loose fantastic guitar tones can you can you talk about what if you remember at all what, what gear was used on that and and how you approach the tones on that oh it's that well that's really easy it's it's kind of uh, i will say that previous to working with Loverboy, uh i had never met a guitar player that had like uh a certain tone that was a signature like everybody that I had recorded before just brought in the amp that they used live, blah, blah, blah. But Paul Dean came in with, this is my four by 12. This is the high watt head I use. I built my guitar. This is my tone recorded. Hmm. And it was just like, I was going, wow, this is what I always dreamed about. And so, uh, you know, basically uh, he kind of pushed me. He was the guy that really, had the biggest influence on me at the start of actually understanding getting guitar sounds. So we, uh, you know, basically by, you know, kind of like a method that I came up with then that we did is uh, we just, to get that sound, we used the two mics that I've used my whole career, a 421 and a 57, and usually a room mic, an 87 or something. And we just moved the mics around, found the right speaker, for each mic and moved it around till, till there was a sweet spot. I moved it around. He listened in the control room. We found those and we put it, put it up on the Neve and that's the sound you hear. The only thing is turn me loose is the only one we didn't use the high watt on. And I'll talk about the high watt. <laughs> it is actually my super lead and he wanted to try it. And so it's dimed the whole, it's like a, I bought it in, the late 70s new and uh it was dimed and he stood in the corner because he had a single coil in the corner at little mountain facing the corner <laughs> to get rid of all the hum and that's turn me loose that's the only one that's a marshal everything else is the the uh high watt and now this high watt is really interesting because it's a canadian only high watt okay mm-hmm. in canada because the high watts were came to Canada and everybody wanted overdriven sounds, the guy that that distributed them distributed them in Ontario modded it and he ganged the two inputs and put in some sort of I'm not sure how he wired it. So there was this the only those amps made it that came through Canada. It's got an Ontario uh, uh, button on it or whatever, uh, uh, some label. But they were ganged, and that's Paul Dean's sound. And I own one, and everybody that from Hatfield to everybody I've got, as soon as they hear that, they buy one. Everybody <laughs> I've ever recorded has bought a Canadian Watt 50 because it's the only app that makes that sound. <laughs> so there you go. And that's Paul Dean's sound. Wow. Like, and that's, like I said, it had such a huge influence because he was, he was the only guy that was like all the guys that I've read about. You know, like, this is their sound, this is their amp. 
he was the first guy that actually said, this is my sound. So that stuck with me and that made a huge impression. That's fascinating, man. I wonder but if the, like, the funny thing. I, I was going to say, I wonder if life ended a great up. Great story. With this, that, so the whole. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's I could talk about that. But um, uh, the funny thing is the whole time I was doing that album, he was on my case and the band were on my case because they wanted it to sound like a Pat Benatar album. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great because, which is Chin Chapman, right, at the time, or Mike Chapman, right, his engineer. And they were pushing me, and I'm going like, okay, it was like, it was tough for me. I was learning a lot. And it's it's great because about two years later, I was in New York working with a band called Spider, and Anton Fig was the drummer. And he, he was working with Mike Chapman, and they had the first Loverboy album. And they were busting the engineer's balls to try and get that sound. So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> That's cool. See, uh, see now it's you all have about the guitar sounds, right? Now you have me intrigued. I want to know what the deal is with the high watt. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about Canadian high watt players. That's why I said Lifeson. I wonder if he used Canadian only, you know, maybe from the <laughs> same. Well, he used, uh, I was warmed up for Rush in Toronto. And I, when I did, an album after we played with him he used the country cl club and country marshals which are right. kind of an interesting marshal right i think they're called club club and country or club yeah country. Or, anyway or, that was that sound on you know uh, yeah the main sound right and later, I, I didn't yeah. have a marshal or anything and he actually said yeah that was he sent his two of them for free he sent him to me for, oh. in the studio i couldn't believe it what a nice guy that's cool yeah, yeah. they have a certain sound i've got one in my warehouse wow it's that sound on you know tom sawyer etc that's that whole album yeah those I, amps i guess he used to run one clean and one dirty and then they'd blend them like for the in the studio he'd run them yeah both same time. and he used those live yeah 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 awesome um uh, Find you one of those amps, Dave, if you want. <laughs> you, you'll what? You'll loan me one? Oh, he froze Sorry. up at the wrong moment. He froze up at the wrong moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you there, Bob? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We lost you there for a second. What'd okay. you say about the high watt for Dave? I said, D I'll find you one, Dave. Oh. <laughs> I'll find you one of those highways. Okay. I'm just, I'm just curious what, what's going on inside. You know, that's me. I, I've been kind of on this quest of I mean, the, the, documenting, like, famous amps. I, I was just going to, I was just going to, yeah. The, yeah, the interesting thing about it is that, of course, uh, uh, like every English amplifier, they vary, but I would say that there's a good 80% of them have that sound. Right. I would say, because I've gotten lots of amps for other people. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. That's cool. cool. Um, so, Dave, you want to jump in? Do you have a question? So, uh, don't you have a, a Jose modded Marshall, too?
Bob, there. Can you hear us? Looks like we got a bit of a freeze, eh? We have a bit of a freeze. Okay. Hmm. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a Fort Elizabeth. Difficulties, people. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's do a cheers. Let's do a cheers. Oh, cheers! And we lost him. He's buffering. Okay, end of the show, people. Sorry. No. Yeah. <laughs> the great thing about this software is that oh, you come back. He's back. back. Are you back, Bob? Oh no. We have some bandwidth problems. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's like a proximity to Wi-Fi thing. Yeah, I wonder. You know, maybe. Um, well, while we're waiting for Bob well, anyway. <laughs> uh, and the internet, yeah, uh, Dan Pfeiffer had a question, so um, uh, I'll get I to that, Dan. I promise. Related to Bob. Um, he basically asked how many guitars are in your collection faves any, any favorites and do you live near Kirk in Hawaii well maybe we'll we'll answer those questions when Bob comes back yes thank you uh, David Garner for a $3 super sticker tell us about uh the amp you were going to ask about, Dave, about... Well, I was going to ask about uh, a Jose Modded Marshall that I'm pretty sure Bob owns that he got the same time, um, well, I think the same time that Metallica got theirs. Or maybe Metallica got it after Bob's. Okay. Hey, Bob. I'm back. You're back. You're back. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably not the best. Uh, I'm sorry about this for you. Yeah, I think your connection is a little, little poor. Is there any better, any place else that you might have a stronger Wi-Fi? I wonder if you sent him a text, Mark. Yeah, I'll try. If might be best, just yeah. see if he's got a. Well, let's see if there's anything for me in here. I think I saw something in here. Um, uh, saw something. Uh, okay. I'm texting. Oh, you guys have questions for Pete or I right now. <laughs> While we're waiting for Bob. Um, Joe Alba's asking what we're sipping on. Uh, I think Dave's got a Chimay. <laughs> I have a Chimay going um, today. I've got a glass of Fortaleza. With a, uh... I'm drinking Sam Adams. So, David Vivar, Bob's in his. And uh, <laughs> man, it's, I hope I hope he comes back. So it's Hawaii, I, you know. It's like you know. Yeah. Low key. He was saying he's got, it's really windy there, I guess, right now. And he's saying even with the house and stuff, he thought the car would be quietest. So I think that's why he's uh, yeah hanging out there. But we'll see if we can figure it out. Maybe he'll move. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that's someone ask me something somewhere in here, and now I can't find it. But uh... Okay, I see him here. 
Hey there, there you are. Different truck. <laughs> Different truck. Is it closer to the Wi-Fi? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, I think we just have a little connectivity problem. Yeah, we, we have a nice floral print now going yes. on behind you. That's full Hawaii. Yeah, so so it's like uh, I can get a pretty good snare drum sound and a guitar sound, but yeah, internet. <laughs> can run a big Neve console, but forget about the internet, right? Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. I think it's endearing. So what I started to ask you about was, um, don't you own a Jose modded Marshall? Yes, I do. And I got that because when I did Dr. Feelgood, Mars had had a Jose. And he explained to me where it came from. And, you know, just hearing it. So actually, I was lucky enough that I decided to get one right away. And uh, so I talked to Jose and what blew me away is I never met him, uh, but I described to him what tone I wanted, you know, uh, just, and I got the amp, plugged it in, turned it on and it was the tone. Like I really could not believe that just by talking to him, he nailed it. Do and, you remember you what know, you had? Well, you know, I said that I didn't want it. I didn't want it like overly gainy. I wanted enough gain, etc. And I wanted kind of warmth in it. Not, not like what people will call eddy sound, but just kind of a little more midi, a little more rock. More classic. So I didn't go for, yeah, yeah. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, uh, that is the only other amp that was used on James Sound on the Black album, is that we added the Jose Marshall in rather than in queuing mid-range, which is something that I've always done. It's kind of like get the amps that have the voice, right? We added a little bit, just a hair of that, and it brought a lot of the face that you hear on what I call face presence, the mid-range that you know, it's kind of the scoop sound with the boogies, etc. that they used. The Marshall added that just one little kind of hint of mid-range at the right volume to the overall sound. That made a huge difference. So it's almost like using, you know, just a different color. And, and kind of that's how I've gotten guitar sounds ever since I you know, got into using two different types of amplifiers or whatever, you know. For different yeah, volumes, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean um, that's a great way to do things. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, one might be know, cleaner, you... one might be more distorted, one might be more mid-range, like you said. Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic way to get great sounds. Blending. Well, yeah, and it, I think it to me it's the only way because, you know, every amplifier has a certain, you know, because of, you know, through the years just buying so many <laughs> you know you kind of figure out what what is great and what's great about you know fenders marshalls high watts you know just other different kind of amplifiers um and you know from certain eras they they have this tone and i've always thought you know like when you first start engineering and recording it's always about eq and stuff and compression what i realized no it's mike Mike Choice, Mike Selection, 
you know, the right speaker boxes, the right heads, the combination, you know, the guitars, everything aside from EQ is the most important thing. EQ is the last thing. And most, mostly the EQ that I use now is always in the mix, and that's to make the mix work. You know, most of the, the stuff that I recorded is pretty much flat, you know. You mentioned you use a 57 and a 421 for years and years, as well as like an 87 for a room mic. Is that something, do you often put a room up with those two close mics? Um, well, yeah, and this is, uh, you know, depending, but really where I got the most out of a room mic was working with James. Like I always recorded a room mic, but it was always very distant. So what it did is it added a depth, and that's an old trick that everybody's used for a long time. But the 57 and 421 are pretty much, well, I can tell you a whole pile of stars, but let's finish with the room mic. With Headfield, basically it's 421s and 57s on the cabs. And of course we spent, you know, finding the sweet spots on the speakers, the best cabinets, the, you know, everything. And then basically, you know, if you get the right gain, with both those even gain on both those mics, you pretty much got the sound just like that, okay? But part of his sound is is what he calls crunch. And crunch isn't the crunch that I thought it was. I always thought crunch was kind of in the top end. His was this the bump in the bottom, which is kind of a resonant frequency. Mm. And so um, it's the way he plays. And, you know, he just likes this certain thing that is in a sound so i had never done that before so what we ended up happening ended up happening is what i heard with what they had done before i heard that it was a distant mic and that's how you get that kind of thing so what we did is we ended up building a room at one-on-one -on -one with mic stands and plywood and i moved the 87 around for days and placed it height distance and and we moved the panels in and out and we found one spot that was the bump that's about three or four hundred cycles that just went he it kind of has this sound like it's a gunk mm -hmm. and that's part of the sound right when he mutes palm mutes mm -hmm. it just makes this resonance and as soon as we hit that we didn't touch it that's the sound on the black album now the interesting thing is when you add that all the kind of like sizzle in the top the harshness with the boogies etc it went away because the way because there's just a hint of room not distance right pretty close but so there's a little bit so it just got rid of a bit of the the irritating stuff in the top end and that's why from top to bottom that sound is just so magnificent because it's it was shaped with microphones amplifiers for a long time and it took us like a week to get that sound you know wow and, and it was all about doing the work right spending the time getting everything right and really you know him telling me what he wanted and me just trying my best to kind of you know translate what he was hearing and it's it's it can be it's a long process but evidently it worked the funny thing about the Jose amp is when we were doing guitars, because I, I basically recorded the guitars with them. I punched them in, and they're so tight that it took forever to get three tracks of James Hetfield super tight. 
Um, so he'd sit behind me, you know, because we're in the middle of the speakers. And while we were doing all the takes, the Jose Marshall was behind him. And while we were doing guitars, he turned in the Marshall by using uh, duct tape and, and whiteout. He, he changed the Marshall into asshole, right? <laughs> <laughs> Over a period of three months. So one day I looked behind and I looked. That it's basically the asshole was me, right? So the whole it took him three months to do it, but it was hilarious, though. And by the way, yeah, we, I've, we, I've, I've I've still got the amp, the asshole amp in my in my studio. Oh, the I, tape I, and everything—that's great. Yeah, that's amazing. A picture of it. Yeah, that's you know, the fun, uh, the, sense of humor. The funny thing is, so what year? What year did were you recording a one-on-one the black album there? Uh, 90, 90, 91, mainly 91. Yeah. I actually remember at that point in time, I'm a little kid basically working for Andy Brower's studio rentals. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure we delivered some stuff to you on that session at one-on-one. I remember it distinctly. Obviously didn't know what it was going to be at the time. I knew it was Metallica, but that was it. But I don't remember what was rented or what it was, but something was rented. Well, yeah, I think uh, I think what we did is like with Jason, uh, with with his sound, you know, he had a very bright, almost guitar sound, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, during you know pre-production and everything, we got into the fact of, you know, getting him to play more like with the drums and you know, augmenting the bottom, kind of as a bass player, as a rhythm section rather than just doubling the guitar sound. So ended up, we we tried every amp and bass that was ever made. Right. <laughs> we we debuted everything, and we got a lot of stuff from, at Andy Brower's, right? Yeah, because right and down guess, the street. And guess what we ended up with? An SVT and a precision bass. <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. The old Chevy truck of basses, of bass rigs. <laughs> and, you know, and... But but the amazing thing is Jason em- embraced it, and then he went, "Whoa!" And of course, he's got a collection of of those things. But it's kind of interesting that the thing that is actually the standard, we tried everything, you hmm. know. And then he then he got about the fact that with the Black Album, it wasn't just him doubling the riff. A lot of times he does did, but he ended up being a bass player. Like it strays from just the riff. And he became like with the drums, so it's pretty cool. And it filled in the sound. There's bass on that album. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. So I, real quickly, I want to get to Dan's question. Um, we were talking about your guitar collection. You know, you've been collecting for a long time. Uh, he's he wanted to know how many guitars are in your collection, or any favorites. Uh, and also, do you live near Kirk Hammett? Uh, Kirk lives. Uh, Kirk lives in Oahu. Okay, I live in Maui, it's, which is, is a different island. But I will say one thing, as I went to visit uh, uh, Kirk and I played the Greeny guitar, right? Peter Green's guitar. Yeah. Right. Which is, which was, which was, wow. Heavenly? That's all I can say. That's so good. Well, yeah, like it's, it's definitely beat up, but the sound to it is, and, and, uh, Kirk and I figured it out, and you know Alexander Dumbum, a friend of mine, we kind of figured out, and basically what we figured out is that the pickups aren't actually out of phase; just one of the coils out of phase. 
which is why oh. in the middle position, it's not, you know, because I've wired my Les Paul, you know, the way like out of phase. So I know what out of phase humbuckings sound like, right? Right. And it didn't sound like that. I picked it up and I went, no, this is not right. This should not sound like it does. And we figured out that one of the coils in the humbucking at the front is actually out of phase and one's in phase. So it retains the bottom. That's the sound of that guitar in the middle position. Just kind of thins out a little bit or something, eh? Yeah, it puts a scoop on the top, which makes it warm. Because uh-huh. it's out of phase. Yeah. That's Inter- what I figured. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Um, we also have a super chat. From oh. The- oh, yeah. Go ahead. But you asked something else. What was it before I went off on a tangent? Oh, how many, how many guitars are in your collection? Um, probably... Uh, I I don't didn't really count, but I, I imagine 150, 175. But I will say that I what I did is I collected sounds, and you got to understand the problem I have. <laughs> that every every guitar, I think that's a good problem. We can appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. you see, the the thing is, is what it's like if you start at at the seed of of of, of kind of like the way I've worked. Is I remember all my favorite guitar players. I have the amps and all the effects and all the guitars that they used. <laughs> Probably my closest collection would be Gilmore and Jimmy Page. Oh. And so, and uh, this is an example. So I've got a Coronado, the real, the real deal, Coronado off Led Zeppelin One, which usually comes with two tens. So I found one years ago. Anyway, so, uh, and it sounds it sounds like the, the first album, but it doesn't quite sound like that. So anyway, to make a long story short, Alexander reconditioned, Bumble reconditioned it for me, mm. brought it back to Maui, and I'm sitting here, and I finally found a replacement for the Oxford speaker case. You can't find that. Put it in a box, and I got my 59 Esquire, and there it was. And I went, this is this is it, but it wasn't quite it. And I'm going, what is wrong? I go on the internet and somebody talked about, well, they always used a, J, a JP1. And I'm going, what is that? And I go like, oh, it's an Echoplex, a tube Echoplex at the time. I've got Mick Rouse's one that he used in Mott. So I grabbed that, <laughs> ran downstairs, hooked it all up together and played good times, bad times. And I was a 13 year old. It was like, oh my God, I nailed it. <laughs> that's great. That that's is awesome. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you started out as 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 a guitar player and I often wonder cuz then you're working in the studios and stuff too and I often wonder was the goal to, you know, play guitar, be in bands and stuff and then was the studio production engineering mixing a happy accident or were they both your focus or You don't really plan this stuff out. What happened with me is that it was always about like there was always better guitar players than me always and you know so i decided like let's put it this way one of my favorites was pete townsend i went who am i the closest to and it was pete townsend so i concentrated on rhythm okay and then when i got into that i got into the sounds of guitars like i can remember the first time hearing honky tonk woman in that sound i remember all right now that sound 
you know, I remember the sound. So that's always been big. When I bought the second Queen album, Queen 2, I bought it. I went, I don't know what's going on here, but whatever's going on here, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. So it was not a switch about being a guitar player, but that was going to, I was going to learn how to do that. So I became obsessed with sounds, the instruments, and I wanted to know how to record that. I wanted to be able to do what I heard on the second Queen album. It all sort of goes hand in hand. If you're, if you have this love for the sounds, then you want to know how they recorded those sounds because that's such a big part of it also. And, uh, you know, it's, that all goes hand in hand. Yeah, I totally. And I'm, I, I love Pete Townsend. I, same wavelength. Yeah. Thing. And it, yeah. So and it's funny because I actually met him a few years ago on my birthday and I'm totally geeked out with him. And, <laughs> and, and I told him the story. I said, I tried to be like you. And I once hooked 16 of my friend's speaker cabinets up to my little lamp at one time just to look like I had a marshal like you. And he was completely bored and walked away. But <laughs> I said, I said, you were the, you were the, you were the guy. Anyway, it was amazing to meet him because he was a huge, uh, you know, he was one of the, a big influence for me. I have many of them, you know, that have been lucky enough to meet. But uh, he's one of them and had, you know, earlier on, I just concentrated, like I said, on sounds and rhythm. And then I gently worked myself into being able to play, you know, solos and lead, you know. Yeah. Right. Um, so that and that, you know, that that gets into not just lead sounds, that gets into rhythm sounds, which is the basis of kind of what I'm about in terms of. Like, because when, when I'm talking about, I'm not talking, like with Metallica, we're talking about James's rhythm sound. It's Pete Townsend, rhythm sounds, Keith Richards, Paul Cossos, Dave Gilmore. Of course, there's a lead thing, but you know what I mean? That's the essence of the subtleties of amplifiers to me. Of course, that is true also with leads, and I'm not underestimating that. But the core of it is that, you know, that rhythm sound from, you know, Malcolm Young. You know, the rhythm player, right? His sound, you know, sure, absolutely. great story there. You know, I met him when they were doing Thunderstruck. I was doing Motley hmm. and his, his Gretsch, the pickup windings broke in that main guitar. Uh -huh. and, and so, uh, Paul Rogan, or Rogan, what's his name? Alan, Alan, Rogan. Alan, Alan Rogan, Rogan came over and said, yeah, he says to me, he says, Bob, do you know anybody that could rewind this pickup? And I said, I know the guy. There's a guy in Vancouver whose mom worked at the Fender factory in the 60s, and he does amazing jobs. He rewound Malcolm's pickup, okay? And Malcolm was so happy, he says, if you buy a Jet Firebird, it'll, I'll, I'll get Alan to copy everything. But exactly like mine. So I bought that. And once again, you plug that guitar into with an amp, and it's not Malcolm, but it's the sound. Mm -hmm. So I still yeah. got that guitar. Wow. You know what I mean? It's, it's so, it, it's just like, and you never realize what it is until you actually see it and hear it and know why it sounds like it does. And then it all makes sense. Yeah. Right, right. Cool. Uh, thanks, Joe, for the super chat, by the way. I want to thank you. Um, so an another question I had, for you, Bob, was regarding David Lee Roth, your time working on 
the album with Jason Becker. Can you talk about uh, that time, you know, that album and, and uh, how, how it was working with Jason? I think that was really his last album, you know, he didn't, couldn't tour after that because uh, of the ALS. And I was curious, you know, about the time with that and then what gear was used. Um, well, it was Steve Hunter and Jason. And, you know, Jason was struggling with his health. And so it was, it was tough on him. But, you know, he played really great. And I'm pretty sure he used a Marshall, but he used, I believe, it's an Ibanez. Um, is that possible? I forget the guitar, but he he had a <clears throat> a different sound. He was definitely influenced by the whole Eddie sound, mm-hmm. you know. So we used like a phaser. We used a phaser, and of course there was a lot of guitar work with Steve Hunter, who was I, I was a huge fan of his because of you know stuff with Lou Reed especially, and you know it just his sound and his playing. So I love doing that record. I had so much fun. And both both guitar players were just great, but Jason obviously was a super huge talent. But it was hard to see him, uh, you know, being unhealthy. It was it was a bummer. But he was a trooper and he played his heart out. Great guy too, just a sweetheart. Yeah, what what an inspiration, really. All these years, so yeah, survive. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Pete, uh, any questions from you? Yeah. I mean, I was actually going to ask you kind of a two-part question. Um, you know, I went back and listened to a lot of things that, that you've done and worked on. And, and one of the things I went and listened to was some paolas. And I was listening to Eyes of a Stranger, which is, if there's anybody out there that doesn't know that track, go and listen to it after the show, because it's such a brilliant song. Uh, and, you know, your guitar tones and playing is so cool. Uh, and I remember that song, you know, growing up from the time I was a kid. But anyway, it's a two-part question because I, I was going to ask you about how you achieve some of the tones on that because there's some great stuff that sounds like Space Echo or Echoplex to me, Tape Echo, because it's got the reggae-like chords going on. And and it sounds like a telly or something to me. It's super cool tones. But also, maybe the bigger question is the arrangement is so cool. Um, it starts out with what sounds like a Lindrum or something like that to me, and then drums come in and it builds with this terrific bass line and these kind of sparse chords. And then halfway through the tune, we get to the middle eight, which, and it just opens up and this overdriven guitar comes in and starts doubling the bass line, which is so cool. Cause I'd never really thought about it or noticed it before, but it's just reinforcing that bass part. And you've got those great clean rhythm guitars and then that overdriven line. And it's just such a great arrangement. So, I mean, you know, I, as part of the two-part question, I'm wondering about the rig and also how you approach arranging something so brilliantly. Um, I know you did the Gravity album by Our Lady Peace, and and Rain, in an interview, the singer from that band, said that they'd always tried to add so many layers to their music, but when you came in and were producing with them, you said, let's not try and add so many. Let's like break it down and make the album uh, sound more akin to what the band sounded like live. Uh, better arrangement, I think. So if can you just speak a little bit to that like your approach with 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 arranging well the uh eyes of stranger track well a couple things um how that started is um when i started writing music uh i said to myself any money that i would make by writing a song you get paid for songs getting out but 
I got a check. And so I decided that, and this is how I've got a hundred and whatever many guitars, is that the money that I make from writing songs, I put back into what I do. So um, I was listening to the Natty Dread album by Bob Marley. And I noticed that there's a couple songs that there was a drum machine. So I found out somehow what drum machine it was, and I bought one. So I bought that and fiddled around, and I kind of went, I'm going to write a bass line for this song, based on kind of listening to Natty Dread. So I wrote the bass line, and I recorded it at the studio after, over a Hudson's Bay commercial after I did a jingle. And the drummer of, of the Paolas was working at the studio. So we just did that demo. So we did the demo, and we just overdubbed it quickly. And when McRonson came in, who we can definitely talk about, um, what was amazing with Ronson, and he, I could go on about him, he listened to the demo and said, we're not going to get much better than that. And he just added the keyboard. So that song is basically a demo that we made in probably a day. Mm -hmm. So there was no there was no thought put into the arrangement it was just we just winged it and it just happened to work out wow. which is the the magic of making music and working in studios you know i'd say the only thing that that probably is i was so comfortable being in a studio the studio can be very kind of terrifying to a lot of musicians i was so comfortable that i could work really quickly and stuff so yeah but Ronson was probably my one of my biggest muse in terms of learning how to arrange, etc. You know, so he helped a lot becoming a producer. I would say. And what okay. a legend, what a legend to work with too. So. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No doubt. Go ahead, Dave. So, uh, tell us about John Sykes. Yeah. <laughs> So you, well, you I was out with something there or something <laughs> on the white snake. Album. Okay. Sorry. So what happened is, so I was, I forget who I was working on. I might've been Molly and Mike Fraser and Mike Stone and Sykes. They were recording the white snake album and they were, they had been working on the guitar sound for, I'll just guess at two weeks, they brought in a PA to put the, guitar ramp through. They tried everything. And finally, Mike Frazier, the assistant, came over and said, would you come over and help us get a guitar sound? Okay. And I said, sure. So I took a break from whatever I was doing and I went over. And basically, I did exactly what I just talked about. I put, I said, John, I'm going to move the mic around when you like what I hear on this speaker. I'll stop moving it. We'll go to the next speaker. 421, 57 on the two best sounding speakers. And then I said, what I normally do is I, I usually delay and modulate a second power amp and split the sound. Okay. So he had another box and we used the slave on the boogie. And so it was kind of like a stereo sound. And, and I kind of recorded it once, uh, got the sound, and then he flipped it the other way. Now I'd done that with Motley. Okay, with Mars. Anyway, but case in point, and within an hour, we had the sound that's on the album. And that's just really being, and this is a key point with 
with recording guitars is you have to get a player involved in getting the sound. It's not your interpretation of what the sound is. It's like, if I move the microphone and you like it, basically, if you use those two mics and with the gain at zero, and you move the mic, you're going to get the, the best guitar sound that you could possibly get for a start. Okay? Sure. And that's what I did. And, and so, so immediately, we were best friends. <laughs> the guitar sound that he wanted in basically an hour. And that's why I did the Blue Murder, Blue Murder, Murder album. And by the way, he's probably the best guitar player I've ever recorded. Yeah, that helped. <laughs> so you did this. You, you got the sound at the mics, but then you said that you delayed and did a bit of mod, bit of modulation, right, to do the stereo split. Yeah, another um, Yeah, you just mic up it, you slave it, and you just I I use like a Roland and it has light modulation. Just to, it's not even a chorus. It's just a slight delay, and it just fills the room. And when you put that in the other speaker, and you double it and kind of flip it. It just, it's that, that wall of sound that works. And I also use a little bit of AMS chorus. And of course, all the clean sounds that I've gotten right up to now always have the AMS chorus, on, okay. which is a chorus strip that you can get. You know, that's, that's the sound on, on the Black Album. And, you know, it's Wanted Dead or Alive, the 12-string sound. It's right. cold. It's, it's pretty much everything. Is that the that's, AMS that... That's the reverb and delay that you can also make a chorus. No, it's 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 the no, it's the delay unit, and you have to buy a, a special chorus strip. They're very rare to find, but oh. um, so you guys can't get yeah, it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I see people searching. People you are searching reverb people. right now. They're like on reverb. Where do I find? Um, yeah. Oh, well, the I guy thought, at Studio Electronics. Oh, so. Four twenty one fifty seven. Four twenty one fifty seven. Your standard go tos. That's more than just you. There's a bunch of people that I know that do that same kind of thing. That's I think a very old, old approach to things, and still probably the best. <laughs> um, well, you... what's interesting about just the reason why I use those is what I found is that everything the fifty seven lacks, the four twenty one has, and vice versa. Yeah, so it's like the whole, it's the almost hole like in the center. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like six L sixes and EL yeah. thirty-fours, right? Do yeah. you know what I mean? It's it's the exact same concept. Yeah. So is there a place you put it. you put these on two separate speakers, the, the mics or one speaker? Yes. Two separate two. speakers. And you do you put the fifty seven off center cone? I'm getting now I'm gonna get real geeky. Or on center, or what about the four twenty one? No, what you do, this is this is really simple. First of all, you you, you just use a mic and you find the best sounding. I a fifty seven or four twenty one. You just grab that and find the two best speakers in the cabinet, right? Yeah. Each one sounds different, mm -hmm. so you find the the better ones. And then I would go out out to the studio where earplugs, and I would move the fifty seven. Around going from off off center to center, you know, anywhere, and basically the guitar player would listen, and when you know I do it very slowly, and they'd stop playing, and I would stop, and that's a sweet spot. Then I go right. to the other mic, right? 
So in other words, he's involved. He's hearing yeah. what he wants to hear. Yeah. And you're finding the sweet spot. And usually that kind of, you combine those two and you're, you're pretty much 80% there. I mean. So you that, pretty much find the sweet for spot me. for each mic, whether it's more on center or off center, depending on the artist. Yeah, I don't have a rule whatsoever in terms of where it is. It's really depending mm -hmm. on what the guitar player hears because, you know, a fraction of a, a fraction movement can mean so much. It's kind of, it's, it, it's, it's interesting very... that miking is exactly the same thing that, I mean, I've worked with other people too, like Brendan O'Brien and stuff, and he does the exact same miking technique. I mean, it's still, yeah. it's a 57 yeah. to 421, two separate speakers, and they're... Two separate well, speakers, that's interesting. Two separate speakers, and they, they put them where they sound good, essentially. I have I have two questions I think Bob takes it a little further than Brendan. Brendan, I think, kind of has a standard spot. He kind of puts it more in. But, mm -hmm. but like, with you adjusting it, I think you take a little more time with it. Do you have a favorite? Yeah. Do you have a favorite speaker, a couple of speakers, and also do you ever go off axis or is it usually mic straight on? Um. Well, there's a, there's also the the whole thing that Brian May does, and a lot of people do, is actually purposely put it out of phase and go off axis for a tone, right? I've done that many times, right? Where you actually put something that's not in phase and you move that around and find a tone. So I'll I'll do that for sure, but that's that's getting away from the basic thing, you know. Um, once you find that basic sound that a guitar player is happy with, then you can do anything. You can go out and venture, but you can always come back to that. Did, and and did you that have a certain question. Yeah, pretty much. And and do you have a, a certain speaker? Preference? Well, it's it's a funny thing. It's. Um, Really, the vintage 30s from the the 80s, the, the ones that are manufactured, I just bought a whole whack of them again for my cabinet sure. to re-speaker my Masha. You know, the what is it? They're 70 watts, but they're they're the vintage So the 30s. early era I mean, vintage 30s. V30s, yeah. Yeah, pretty much I would say all the albums that you mentioned, everybody, we all we all those albums have those that speaker. Because of the warmth in the mid range, right? Okay. Yep. And they could handle they could handle the bottom, right? Exactly. Rather than a you know a regular, rather than a greenback, which would fold in the bottom with with most of those players who use that bottom, you know they, they you know a vintage thirty a greenback could never handle that, you know with that rhythm sound. Yeah, when you think so about Metallica and things. Right. Yeah, that's that's the speaker that could handle it, right? Um, and I, you get used to that. And like I said, I just re-speakered two of my cabs, and and they sound great. They're the English ones, though, right? Okay. Yeah, you know, you know, the funny thing is when I I started working uh, when I moved to California when I was eighteen, I started working at Andy Brower's, nineteen eighty seven. So. You know, this was the tail end of the 80s. And I would say 90% of all the, the Marshall 412 cabs that were rented for these records were vintage 30s. Of course, there were vintage speakers yeah. also we had. We had greenbacks. We had other things. But most of the time, majority were vintage 30s. 
Um, now, depending on the player, a greenback can be great, but exactly what? Well, Bob they, 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 yeah, they, of, of course. That's, but yeah. I think you know, you know, when you're when you're trying to help somebody form a sound, or you know, you you go to the basics, and mm-hmm. you know, when you you know, because people drag all sorts of stuff into the studio, and they expect like any yeah, the sound that you know. Eddie Van Halen has, and you're going like, well, dude, your guitar, and you, you know, like, you have nothing that's going to get that sound. Especially you know what I mean? hands. <laughs> they don't, you, you don't have you know, his hands. Try to explain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, and we could talk forever about that, of course, because when I play through James's rig, it doesn't sound like Hatfield. <laughs> it's the same equipment, right? I pick up his guitar, and it's like, it's a version of him, but it ain't him. But so, anyway. So I have a story. The, the point being is, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, I have a story about Hetfield. Uh, I actually have James's Jose here. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, because the, they said it never sounded like yours. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and Greg Fiddleman, obviously, who works with them now, um, contacted me, and he's like, "Can you can you make this better or fix it or see what's going on with it?" Or I don't think it's right. <laughs> Dave, so, I think you've had about like six or seven through your shop, and like, oh, I've had a million. I'm, I'm like the Jose historian. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, six or seven, you know, the, the funny five. Just in the last month, maybe though. Yeah. <laughs> but the uh, I think, well, for one thing, great amp makers like yourself, Jose and Alexander Dumpel, right? It's like, you know, like Jose, he talked to me, and he yeah. got me the sound that I asked him for. Do you follow me? And yeah. it's the same with Alexander Dumbel. What so many people that buy and sell Dumbel amplifiers. You don't get the deal out of it. You don't get the sound out of Alexander unless you spend time and he hears you play. He makes the amp for the way you play. Sure. And the great thing about you, Dave, I will tell you, is the way you make amplifiers, it makes everybody sound good. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that. And I got I to gotta tell you, I got to tell you, for me to find a Plexi 100-watt super lead, it took me 15 years. I must have gone through 60, and mm-hmm. I found one. Right. Now, the thing is, is you make an amp that always sounds amazing. Everyone I've heard, okay? Mm-hmm. That is a feat, and that's why your amps are great, is that you can take it on the road. It lasts. It's mm-hmm. not like a vintage one that if you lose that vintage one or blows up, you'll never get it back. Right. Yours are consistent. You take all the best of what we just talked about and made it in and out. So I'm giving you a very big compliment, but I believe it. And I wouldn't say it unless I believe it's it. High so that's, compliment and that's you. why. That's massive. That's the thing, the key to you, you're, and to be quite honest, you know, like Richie's got great Jose. His Jose sounds really good. Mine mm-hmm. is different, but it was, Jose did it for what I like. Because mine doesn't sound like what Sykes had and what Mars had, right? They they talked to him. Mars went to yeah. see him, right? His sound stuff, right? That's the well, point. You I've worked just on, buy that sound. Yeah, I've worked on many, and there's many um, 
variations of the mod. Some are lower gain, some are higher gain, some are way higher gain. Uh, you know, it just depends. I just worked on Sykes. So I, you know, I worked on one of his and, um, and Vise and I've worked on many, many, many of them. I've seen like 30 of them and they're all a little different. Um, so it's like Alexander, who I know also, uh, he, he makes the amplifier for the player. So he works with exactly. the player to make the amplifier that works for him. So just because right. no, no two dumbbells are the same. I said that the, the best dumbbell, we had Steve Ferris on our show once. Um, yeah. And Steve Ferris had a, a great dumbbell. And we were talking to him yeah. about that. And he was saying he sat with him for weeks, driving him insane. <laughs> to try to get the tone that he was hearing, you know, that what he wanted out of the amp. And in the end, he got it. And I still say that's the best Dumble I've ever heard was Steve <laughs> Ferris's old Dumble, which he later sold. But um, it sounded remarkable. Oh, yeah. Different. I mean, I normally don't love overdrive specials. Those aren't my thing. I like the clean side of them, but the overdrive is not my thing. I'm a more of a Marshall guy. Um, but I understand. But Steve's. I really liked how his sounded. Well, yeah, and uh, I I think that's what's so funny about the people that spend a lot of money on dumbbells. It's like unless you know the man and you're with him, you're not really getting what he does. Anyway, but I'll tell you the thing is, is I don't have an overdrive special, but I've got modded fenders or re reworked fenders that he does, mm -hmm. and to me. Awesome. That that's just otherworldly what he does to fender amplifiers. I'll tell you, I always wanted like Pete Townsend, right? The 310 base bandmaster, right? Yeah. Tweed bandmaster that he used with the high power, right? On who's next? I've got the pedal, I've got the right wretch, but I never found a bandmaster that that <laughs> cut the mustard, right? They all sounded like shit. Vintage ones. Fender reissued a Bandmaster. I went, great. This is great. Horrible. Sorry, <laughs> Fender people. But it was horrible. So I said, Alexander, can you make it sound good? This is a really funny. I think it's hilarious. The Alexander made it a great tweed Bandmaster, right? It was sitting there. Eric Clapton comes to visit Alexander Dumble. He said, what's that over there? He says, it's my friend Bob Rock's amplifier. He says, do you mind if I plug in? Eric Clapton, right? We're talking EC. <laughs> plugs it in and says, he says, I want that amp. <laughs> well, it's Bob's amp. He says, no, I want that amp. So Alexander phoned me and said, Eric Clapton wants your amp. And I'm going like, what? <laughs> no, isn't that funny? I've worked all my whole life. I wanted to sound like Eric Clapton. He wants my amp. Anyway, Alexander made up two other ones. <laughs> but that's, you know, I think that's hilarious. That's great. <laughs> You're like, wait, but who wants my amp? He's a G. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Anyway, so <laughs> okay, you, you mentioned uh, uh, we were talking to Sykes, and when you were talking about doing the 1987 guitar tone, you mentioned the boogie because I, I know we use the Coliseum 300 heads, but there's all also the you know 
the the Jose connection with him. So did he on Blue Murder or on the 87 album or any other time that, you know, also use the Jose when recording? Uh, on the Blue Murder album, he used the Jose. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He used his Jose with the boogie. It was basically the setup. You know, that setup. A, a blend. Blend. The same thing. Okay. The blend. Cool. Yeah. Because he, he just loved that. And then I think when he played with them, he went back to 800s. But, uh, you know. No, he had, to be in the room he had Jose modded 800s with Lizzie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he uh, had a sound to behold when he's playing guitar in the room with that that setup. I mean, it was loud. Oh my yeah, god! I know. I was kind of, I was kind of like hoping he'd come by the shop when the amp was done, but, mm. but, but, but he, uh, you know, it's, it was during all this kind of madness, what's going on and stuff. So that yeah. didn't happen. Yeah. But I was, I was. His hands hoping, are just so. Cool. I was ho- sort of hoping to just hear him play through the amp in the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's something else. And what yeah. I've always loved about him is that he's always just played that same Les Paul, right? I mean, yeah. we tried other guitars and always went that. And he, what he gets out of Les Paul, just it's just phenomenal. You yeah, know, right. he's, he's a yeah monster. When no, when it wasn't cool to play a Les Paul, he played it. Mm-hmm. Right. Question for you, Bob. Uh, from this is from Alan. Um, I know we talked about speakers. We talked about uh, you know. Uh, how you go about blending microphones. Um, what about how you blend guitars when you're recording uh, different guitars? Do you go about, you know, with a telly and, you know, or a humbucker bass guitar? Just curious. So we had a question from Alan about how you go about doing that. Well, um, you know, uh, a good example is like, uh, well, is the Malcolm thing when I got that guitar and, and you know, Alan and Malcolm and Angus, you know, they let me into the studio and we talked about amps and they showed me and, and basically they said, you know, they they play and then as soon as it starts to distort, they just dial it back a hair and that's their sound. And I always thought, you know, you, in your imagination when you hear it, it's distorted. But actually it's not. So, you know, I think I think with the, the saturation that's become that's kind of got a little overboard and still works for a lot of people. I think now more than ever, I, I realized that kind of like gain sometimes has a negative effect in terms of the impact. So a lot of times in like with Mars and with uh, newer albums that I've done, I've always put like Malcolm or a cleaner guitar, you know, I've used, I got a great match list that, um, that had originally had four uh, uh, EL eighty thirty fours, right? And it was it had the it had a different preamp. It's like a one of a kind four ten. I bought it, and I would combine that with Marshalls, and yeah, you know. Mm. Uh, so, mm-hmm. but the guitar thing you were talking about guitar things definitely stacking guitars using Ricker Rickenbackers, Fenders, you know different you know P nineties. I'll do anything to get what I got to get, you know, but uh, much like, much like speakers, like microphones and everything, it's always seems to be the blend to get the right thing, but there's nothing like when you get it right with, with just a basic mic setup and one guitar, mm-hmm. you know, like, like the Zambora, uh, Cipro and Wet and the Loverboy albums, both those albums, it's one guitar, one, amp. one track, right? 
Right. None of it's doubled. Wow. Wow. Right. Uh, so that's, the, you know, you, that's just thing? having the guitar. No, that's the guitar just being left of center. Mm. That's what Paul Dean, that's what he said. That's where I want it. And I'm going <laughs> like, okay, but that's why it speaks. Right. And that's, that's when the tone is so pure, but sometimes you want size, you know? So oh. yes, I use different guitars to achieve all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, but that guitar tone is huge sounding which point yeah. i mean the lover boy stuff i mean uh, it's that that's an epic tone i mean i think uh looking, well, looking back at that record i wasn't i wasn't the hugest fan of lover boy obviously when i was growing up but but looking back on that record and the guitar tones were mom oh yeah yeah like i said and actually you know to be i'll be i'll be honest with you the best work that i've done is always when the guitar players and the bands really kind of challenge me and make me bring out the best in me so i think that that's always the best relationship you know when you know i'm i'm just like the thing where i came from being a musician as like what you talked about pete with the paolas what i learned earlier on is that i thought it was kind of backwards when i was learning with the people that i grew up with as an assistant that the producer and the engineer had so much power in the 70s they they'd have a drum kit set up for the drummer and they'd say, this is what you're playing, you know, and there'd be so much padding on the drums. They didn't even sound like drums. And I'm going, this is all not what I thought it was going to be. And I quickly decided that it's more about the musician and what they want rather than me. There you go. Interesting. So you liked being challenged by the musician to get, to get you to give them the best performance. But at the same time, you challenge the musician to get the best performance, such as, say, Kirk Hammett in the famous uh, video that's on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of uh, what, what, which, what, which song was that? It was the solo for uh, Unforgiven. Unforgiven. <laughs> when you basically yeah, kind of lost your shit on him. <laughs> well, I, I did because. But you got to remember, I mean, it's, this stuff is taken out of context. And if you look at the video, you'll see change of clothes, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that was like a week. And what, you know, just, I was just so tired of the whole thing. That was because he was doing those solos near the end, right? Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and I was kind of a little edgy, let's put it that way. <laughs> but what what blew me away Irritated. is that after all of this, in other words, he wasn't around while we did rhythms. So I'm going. He comes in and he he basically had nothing yeah, at the, yeah. on that day, you know. And I'm going, what the fuck? We just worked six months to get here, and you you haven't been working on it. Anyway, to make a long story short, if you if you think about the solo, it ended up being what we had talked about in the argument. Oh yeah. Right? Oh, it wasn't a big <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It wanted to be yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you know, I think you pushed him to it, be. It wasn't you know. a, yeah, and it wasn't, and it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a, like I wasn't trying to be a dick or insult him. And actually, what is amazing, we ended up, and this is what happened in the whole album, is I got the assistant to copy, make cassette copies of every song, every solo he did while he was playing live, right? And gave him all the cassettes, and all the solos after that were all from those cassettes. Right, mm-hmm. like it that they, they all got drawn from all the solos that when he wasn't thinking about it, he was playing amazingly. Right, yeah. it's uh, and this is the thing. 
As soon as you start thinking about it, you're fucked. John Sykes, first take, is incredible when he tries to finesse it. It's okay, but it's not like the first take, you know? Yeah. That's the thing. That's yeah. the scary part about the studio, right? Knowing knowing when to take what is great and leave it, even if there's a mistake. <laughs> and that's what Mick Ronson showed me how to do. That guy... Yeah. Yeah, it just like even what I was describing in Eyes of a Stranger when he said, you know, he didn't have to re-record Eyes of a Stranger. He went, that's great. I just got to add a keyboard. Got to do an edit. Boom. Done. Yeah. Right? Right. Nobody would do that. I never met any producer that would ever do that. They'd say, well, we got to re-record. I, right? I have and seen not- stuff just ruined, ruined where you hear a demo and you're like, oh, my God, that's the greatest thing ever. And they re-record it and re-record it to death. And they all of a sudden, by the time, by the end of by the end of it, it's like it's not the same song. And it's right. It's just awful. It's just awful. That takes all the vibe away. Yeah, I mean, Eyes of a Stranger has so much vibe and it it captures the moment. (laughs) I mean, that track sounds amazing. I could not imagine it sounding any different. You know, it sounds wonderful. So yeah. yeah. And I didn't pay for the tape, I recorded it over a commercial. (laughs) <laughs> that's great <laughs> i didn't, couldn't afford the tape so i just grabbed the tape out of the vault and recorded it over a commercial that's amazing that's awesome you never want, wanted it again <laughs> oh my god uh, on a day like today which was uh you, you did with randy staub and bob clear mountain mixed i think i just had a little two-part thing about that as well first of all it's a great sounding record like warm punch. this is brian adams record i'm speaking of it's a, a yeah. warm punchy present great rock record uh with terrific guitar sounds um keith scott an unbelievable i'd love to oh, know your monster. and and also uh besides that i'm just wondering like you know you eventually kind of transitioned into into production and then you had randy working closely with randy staub a lot and then sometimes somebody like bob mixing I mean, is it just too much to do all three things like engineer produce and mix and you got to get well, your trust well what happened with with um, when I started producing, I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't have a producer's perspective if I was doing all the technical stuff, right? right? I couldn't pay attention to the stuff that I thought I had to do as a producer. So I looked for the right guy. And when I met Randy, I went, I can, Randy is the kind of guy you can have in a room. And he does, he's really talented. And we just, we hit it off as friends and he was the guy I worked with him. And I went, Will you come work with me? And he did Motley with me. That's the first record we did, you know. And uh, and so you know, through the years, basically we mixed together, you know. Um, regardless of credits, it was always the both of us mixing, you know. Uh, wow. And it, it's like I still put my hands on the dial because I, you know, rather than trying to talk to somebody about it, I just do it, you know. So. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like it, but sometimes like there's a, a certain part, there was a certain part of time when, you know, when Chris, Chris was mixing everything and, and Bob and all these guys were mixing everything. And, you know, you, you'd spend time mixing and you see, I come from an age where like, you know, as I was saying with Loverboy and Pat Benatar and Mike Chapman, we were all in competition. So there was this coolness thing. They were all trying to be better. But when everybody started using the same three guys, you kind of go like, well, I can miss this, but they're just going to get them to do it. And I'm not slagging them. Do you know what I mean? It kind of took the fun out of it. 
So I went like, why am I, tr you know, I do a mix and then they just use Chris's mix. Right. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because that that's the way the record company was working at that time. Makes and, sense. you know, I've talked to Chris about it. It's like, you know, we laugh about it because you know, <laughs> Chris, come, he comes from where I came from. He's as old as me. Right. And he he's a talented guy and stuff. So I'm not slagging him. I'm just saying it's right. got more to do with the record companies and the business, you know, that it went that it. way. So mm -hmm. so at some times you just and Bob and Chris, great job. There's a lot of great mixers. There was a lot of great mixers that aren't around anymore. I remember Dave Thorner was a great mixer. There's a lot of guys that that just aren't around anymore. It's too bad there was that went by the wayside, right. you know, whether they don't work or whatever. But I liked it in the day when I heard a record and I went, "Fuck, I want to know how to do that." Rather than hire that guy, I wanted to try and be better than that, right? Yeah, and that kind of went away for a while. That's but cool. now, now I enjoy mixing, and I did this uh, drum library with tune trucks, and they I use wanted them. kind of. I use them. I got them. They're great. Yeah, so, um, and he kind of wanted some of the sounds, so I usually move on, so I never went back to what I did with other bands, and you can't get that sound, but I, I just, I kind of listened to some of the stuff that I did, and I kind of went, why did I stop doing that, you know? Mm -hmm. So so now I've, I've come, and now I like mixing again a lot, because it's kind of an open, uh, an open thing now. It's not kind of... Uh, controlled by record companies now so it's kind yeah. of fun nice it's nice and that's changed and i think with budgets these days and everything that's going on it's like doing it all in one one person is yeah they're maybe not going to spend more. 10 grand to mix a single. yeah no they're not they're not spending the kind of money that was once spent on a mix yeah um yeah it's to, some some of the changes like a lot of things are changed that have changed are good things you know i'm having yeah, a lot yeah. of fun what's going yeah. on today i really that's am that's awesome um, so we have a super chat from david Vibar. he wants to know what's your favorite friedman amp that you're that you love well um thing is, is when i originally bought it i tried the brown eye and i tried the steve stevens model and i just like the voicing of the steve stevens model for me that personally taste that's my personal taste but because I've used the brown eyes so much with Richie and other artists and stuff, I like them both for, you know, I need to get a brown eye because I need them both. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, we that's, have the deluxe now. So, yeah. You, you, <laughs> and Steve, Steve uses them both, right? I mean, he's got. Steve he does, uses both. Yeah, he uses yeah, his okay. model and the deluxe. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, they, they, that's my point. You use it for tones and, yeah. you know. Blend, he blends them. He blends them, and that's always the best way, you know. They both have just these voicings that are are great. You know, the guys in Classics, like uh, Nico, he came up to Vancouver when we were mixing, and he used my Steve Stevens, and he fell in love with that. You know, he just like he just likes both amps, right? I mean, they're they're kind of very similar, but I hear I hear the difference, and yeah, you know. Anyway, I gotta get I gotta get a brown eye. That's for sure. <laughs> I think I think you know a guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, have, we got a question from uh, Alex King. Uh, he wants to know about um, Motley Crue in '94 with Karabi. Uh, were, were they the same the same amps that were used uh, on Feel Good? Or um... yes, yes, they were. Uh, but he did end up using ooh, 
what are the uh, my what did he use? He added those what? Oh, fuck. He had snakeskin ones. What are Soldano? they called? Oh, the Saldanos. Saldano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Soldano and the, the Jose. Sal yeah, that's what it was a combination. That's when he interjected the Saldano, and mm -hmm. he he gave me one too. Uh, but um, yeah, and he uh, the last thing I did with him, which was a hell of a lot of fun that I did for the movie, work with Mars again. And, and I'll tell you a funny a, a thing about this is a great story about tone, right? Is that somebody else did all the demos, a great guitar player. I'm not going to say who it is, right? And all the demos, everything was done. And my wife oh, said, yeah, but he, and my wife says, doesn't sound like Motley. I'm going like, what do you mean? He says, it's not Mars. And my wife has never said anything like that. And I'm going <laughs> like, okay. Anyway, so Mars comes out. We started recording, and my God, as soon as he plays, it's Motley. And it's because he's that sound, and his sound is Motley. It ain't Motley if it ain't that. So well, it was sort of it was sort of like when Motley didn't have Tommy Lee. It wasn't Motley without Tommy Lee. It's just like exactly. that's impossible. You know, I yeah, remember that period of time and Randy Castillo and 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 then there was Samantha, the girl that played with them for a while. And I'm like going, it's not. They're actually, the uh, Samantha was better, but even though Randy Castillo is a great drummer, uh, um, no, it's just still the feel was wrong. Chemistry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it, you know bands are bands, and you know the Karabi album is is a great album, and it kind of sounds like Motley, but it's not Motley, and you need Vince, you, you know whatever you think of whatever. I'm not going to argue with anything about that, but I'll just say that it Motley is one of those great bands that it's, it's the sum of all the parts and that's what makes them great. You know, yep. like I think a lot of great bands, like mm -hmm. you can't replace Malcolm on sorry, you know, it just ain't mm -hmm. the same, you know, mm -hmm. and same with Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah. You know. yeah. Phil Rudd. I, Phil Rudd I feel the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah Phil Rudd. exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, the feel, it's the heartbeat. It's like, changes yeah. so you know there's another there's another question from the anthony k here bob um he represents some artist and he's and who he's been told that he's seriously interested in working with you somehow how does one approach that well uh the way it works is that it has to go through my management mm -hmm. and that, that's bruce allen talent in vancouver who's managed me since basically for 40 years, mm -hmm. manages Brian, et cetera. Yeah, it has to go through that because it, it can't be just, you can't send a CD because of the legal consequences of getting a CD, you know? Sure, sure, yeah. sure. So as okay, long as it well, goes you, through that, I'll hear it. There you go. Anthony, you heard it, so there you go. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the snare on St. Anger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that. Okay. Here's the, here's, but the thing, the thing is, the thing is, is this is this is interesting. This was more um, of a joke question. You realize that, right? Because yeah. a lot of people just just ask that, and and like you know. <laughs> but, there, but but there is a story. There is a story. Here's the thing. While we were doing that, we went to where we went to their clubhouse when we were in San Francisco. We went to their their Oakland place where they rehearsed, you mm -hmm. know, with Cliff, right? 
And, you know, we went with the fan club and we had a great time. And, you know, they, Lars told me about, you know, his drums were set up in a certain place. And we were looking for inspiration. Let's put it this way, because mm-hmm. James wasn't there. So anyway, so I got Fleming. I said, drag out the drums. He talked about the drum kit that he used. So I said, pull out the drums, the double kit, because we were fooling around with other drums. So he set up the drums in the rehearsal and we went on our way. And Lars just kept staring at the drums. Finally, he sat behind and he says, just give me a snare drum. I had bought a Plexi Ludwig snare because I wanted to try it. And he he put it on the drum kit and we and he said, that's the sound. And I said, what? And <laughs> so basically we we basically we did a demo and I used like two fifty-eights, a fifty-eight on the kick drum, and a couple just whatever cymbal mics were around. And we did a demo and that was the sound, and he just would not go back. <laughs> I'm not blaming him, but it this was about this was about basically if you if you can wrap around a, a concept. This was the sound of the drums when they were rehearsing in Oakland. Do you follow me? It's basically the closest to them being in that clubhouse. So it was a way to inspire those guys. And, you know, no matter what St. Anger, what anybody says, it kept the band together. Okay? And that inspired them to go on. So I'm okay with all the flack I've taken. I'm satisfied. (laughs) I love bold stuff like that. I mean, it's great. Uh, it's bold. It's a good, good, yeah. uh, whatever. I mean, it's you awesome. know, get over it, people. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a fucking snare drum sound. Give it a break. Yeah. Listen to Actually, what is it? Roundabout. How about roundabout? <laughs> roundabout. It goes goink, goink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You got it. Exactly. Oh, you dropped the phone. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I love that, you know, what what Bob was saying earlier about uh, the same mixers, the same three mixers mixing everything and everything starting to sound. And you know that the same drum samples start ending up on a bunch of tracks and stuff and all that. I mean, shit, I'd rather listen to something that sounds different any day just because I hear everything that sounds exactly the same all the time. You know, like the perfect snare drum sound. Well, the, the, the thing that changed, that really made a change in my perspective as an engineer and producer was the Octane Baby album by U2, where they played with the perception of drums and sometimes oh. you barely hear the drums. That's sometimes the bass is the loudest thing. You know what I mean? In other sure. words, throwing away the rule book and part of St. Anger is just throwing away the rule book and say, why do we have to put set up the drums the same just because metal, that's what you got to do in metal? It right, was right. like I was more cons- yeah. I was thinking more like Raw Power, the, the Stooges album. Right. Yes. 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 Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, without the solos, there was a a band from San Francisco called the fucking Champs that all they played was riffs strung together, kind of like a punk metal band. And so Lars and I were talking and it's kind of a cool thing. And we just said, if you can put a great solo on this, Kirk, go ahead. You know, and it just it just never worked. But anyway, there you go. A little bit of history there. That's cool. I mean, I love that aspect. I think metal's tough because, like, a lot of metal fans, they're the most like hardcore fans, but they also many times want bands to repeat things over and over again. And like, you try and do something creative and do something different, and that can lead to a lot of hate from fans sometimes. Right. And it's tough, you know. Yeah. They're artists; they want to change. Well, 
You know, I, I, I'd say when I bought Led Zeppelin 3, I heard the immigrant song. I went, great. I bought the album. I went, what is this shit? And now it's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, one of right, my favorite. Right. You know what I mean? I was in the Led Zeppelin club. How could you do acoustic guitars? What is going on? Right? <laughs> so I, under, I understand the mentality behind it. I get it. And I'm okay with it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, right. whatever. Yeah, I, you know, the funny thing, you just said that, and I was going to bring up, well, what about Led Zeppelin? You know, Led Zeppelin experimented on a uh, vast majority of their records, and, and they morphed, and the sound morphed and changed over time, and so they experimented from record to record with with different sounds and different things, and, and I, I think that was beautiful in, yeah. in hindsight. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. And I yeah. understand the same I mean, position with listening to Led Zeppelin 3. What's this acoustic stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I want Led Zeppelin 1. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's it's like that's just when you're young and you're just like because you belong to that club and you know and it brings back memories. But when you, I don't know, when you expand your higher uh, horizons, you realize that there's more to to everything. So I cherish everything Led Zeppelin done clearly. You know, mm. by the way, I got everything he 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 had, every amp, every effect, every guitar. All the Jimmy Page. It's really, sick. of course you do. <laughs> yeah. Hey, speaking of Led Zeppelin, uh, of course you do. Yeah. Let's. Uh, we have a. Question. I just got his book, by the way. By the book, oh, yeah? right? The anthology with all the pictures. It's something to behold. It's really expensive, but he photographs everything. Oh, uh, it's, I have. It's oh, kind of amazing. It. You got to look at the book. It's incredible. Oh wow. Yeah. Now, okay. okay. Now I need it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a super chat from uh, Unfucking Believable. Uh, thanks for the super chat, Bob. Any memories on working with Kingdom Come, uh, the gear? Any stories? And in the same question for Sonic Temple. Uh, well, was the first thing when um, somebody, Derek, uh, what's his name, Derek? Oh, fuck! I better shut up. Uh, the in our guy. <laughs> Derek, no, Derek Shulman. I had to get it right. Derek Shulman. He was the A&R guy with Slippery and stuff. And he says, I've got this band uh, I'd like you to do. So he gave me a shot. And uh, Kingdom Come was the first thing where I broke away from Bruce Fairburn. And, you know, basically they wanted to sound like Led Zeppelin and I was up for it. So, you know, the drummer was uh, a great drummer. Um, and we just tried to to get as close as we could you know, with what I could do at the time. I was learning to be a producer and uh, yeah. And it ended up uh, turning out really good. It's, it's, it's a great album. It's and awesome. Yeah. You know, in terms of, great. yeah, it's a, it's a great album and stuff like that. Um, so I really enjoyed it. And of course there's always a story. So I got to meet John Paul Jones once. I went for dinner with him. And we, we were talking about all sorts of things. And we ended up going to this house of the A&R guy. And we had had a couple of bottles of wine. And he found out I did Kingdom Comedy. started ranting on me. And I had to leave. <laughs> it was just like, he was so insulted that I did Kingdom Come. And I'm going like, dude, we did, you don't get it. We did this because we love you guys so much. It's like, but it was so, it was so horrible. It was, oh, right. yeah. it was like, yikes. Oh, man. <laughs> you just can't win, right? Right. You can't wow, win on that one. Long, man. Jesus. I mean, uh, now, Sonic, yeah. Sonic Temple. Sonic Temple 
it's like I was a huge fan of the Love album. Okay, I love that, oh, yeah. and I like the Electric album that Rick did. But what yeah. Sonic Temple was was basically the hybrid of those two: the best of the Love mm. and the rock ethic of the of the Electric album. You know, and right. it was basically the two guys. Billy was more rock. Ian was more kind of cosmic, right? And more electric. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That's but interesting. That's, um, hybrid. That's cool. It, it's a hybrid. It is. Like, because the, those, the great lines were back, right? You know, the great melodic lines that Billy did were back, sure. stuff like that. But I love the sound of that record. And that was a big part of why Metallica got a hold of me. It was mm. Sonic Temple and 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 Doctor Feelgood? Um, they like the sound of both of them, mm. you know. Mm. Yeah. So, so, I like so that. that's interesting. Was that like from a production perspective? Like because when I think of electric, it's so dry. It's rock. It's great, but it's so dry. And then love is like you say, the more like the lines and it's more ambient and or stuff. Alternative kind of in in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, and less ACDC or something. Yeah. So was that like, uh, did you, was that like your production sort of bringing that to the table or is that something they wanted to do? Like get back to that. Um, not, not, not really. I think, you know, the thing is, is I do this I, back then and I still do it. It's like you, you know, like you preconceived ideas of making albums. It's like you basically set the rules and then you say, this is the album we want to make, but you end up making the album with the, these certain amount of people in the room you know with and it ends up being what it is you know like mm -hmm. conceptional albums maybe maybe style or something but overall the album becomes what it is with a lot of work so the point being is we did pre-production get the arrangements tight we went into the studio and sonic temple became uh what it was because you know when we were finishing and you start finishing a song well, what's, you know, what do we need here? And what was good about the cult, you know? And I, and I said, why don't, why don't you do those lines anymore, Billy? And it was like, Ian, like, well, it takes us back. I'm going like, well, we should do them. And, you know, somehow he did it and we, and he liked it. Like Fire Woman's got those lines all the way through it. Right. But it's mm -hmm. kind of a combination of both. So it's just a question of being in the room and talking and realizing sometimes you got to go back to just realize why, people like certain things right so mm. yeah but i think sonic temple worked well um you know for that reason you know definitely yeah yeah, yeah. So, so you did a um crocus record right i did the I first did. with their first that's when big record right mm, no um, i did was, uh it had midnight maniac on it i think uh, I forget which one it was, what it was, but it it um, it was done on a three M digital machine. Uh huh. It was digital didn't sound very good. They wanted to do it on, and Bruce Fairman and I did it. Did it on Neve console, and you can't hear the Neve at all. Hmm. It was Crocus digitally was not. It was not fun. It hurt. But it's a good album, and they were great guys. Was that, the, was that their second record? That wasn't the one with Screaming in the Night and stuff in it. No, it was after no. that. It was after that, was right, after right, that. right, 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 right. How do you feel about that but now? Great guys. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, digital? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, no, the analog digital ahead. thing now all these years later, like. Well, here's, here's the thing is, like, you know, when I go back to Loverboy and 
I mean, before that, we had a 16-track Scully. And we used to, as soon as we recorded something, we'd EQ when it came back because we had lost so much because of the tape. Mm. You follow me? Yep. And you lost all the the transients and everything. Now, everybody, you know, kind of loves that sound. But what ended up happening is I didn't go to digital. Uh, well, I went to digital uh, on the Black Album because there were so many edits on the drums that basically the tape, we were afraid that it was going to fall apart. So we transferred the analog tape to digital. So I got a Sony Digital 24. And that was when it started to sound good. Okay. Mm-hmm. And since then, I, I stayed with analog as long as I could. And then when digital, I have an album. And they, they said, I, we do analog. And I said, well, I tell you what, we're going to this great studio. They got great mics and neat console. I'm going to record both analog and digital, and I'm not going to tell you which one's which. And you guys take a choice. And what what one was the digital? And the reason why is because when you use great consoles, mics, and you know how to record, you don't need the softness of the analog. And you actually get all the character of the need and all those wonderful mics. You actually retain that. You don't have to battle back from it. So now I'm kind of a digital guy. And the other thing is, is like during the days, it's like on the Tom tracks or guitar solos on the Loverboy album. Do you know what I mean? It was like we we would find now, you know, I I went over lead vocals, right? That were great because you tried one more and we lost a good vocal. So there's archiving and all sorts of stuff. It's like, and I got carried away with digital and all the tracks, but now I've come back and I've realized, you know, what you'd learn, and I'm still learning how to be good at what I do. I try to be the best as I can, and I'm still learning. But it's it's that right combination, you know. Even the plugin mm-hmm. now, you know, I still like I mixed uh, Richie's album, new album, and the Offspring's new album on the console because I went back to the console because it just doesn't. I can't mix in box. It doesn't have what I do. So mm-hmm. now we mixed it on the console again. And I love it, and they loved it, right? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. It almost sounds like a kind of hybrid approach, like the tape, not so much, but you're okay recording the digital, but you like an analog console, some analog gear. Yeah, the, the, the whole point to this, and I think really I'm a sum of all the things, is I'll do whatever it takes to make it sound great. I don't have rules. I don't care about rules because I, I don't think I would have got gotten anywhere if I if I, if I kind of ad- adhere to a certain thing you know even as an assistant I saw like like they didn't even have dynamic mics at Little Mountain they only had condensers I brought them in because I saw them in magazines I bought the first 57 that came into Little Mountain because I saw it on a sleeve of a cover right so it was mm-hmm. all about like you know like not being afraid to change and to learn you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, we that's missed... okay. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, awesome. We we uh, have a super chat that we missed, Dave. Uh, and Pete, um, from Metal Up Yours. Uh, <laughs> were there any particular stomp boxes used with Metallica, or were they all rack effects? I don't recall. Tube screamer. They they use. They use tubes on the on the solos. Kirk used the tube screen, obviously a wah wah, right? Uh, but they also, I, I believe, 
I know that they use two screamers on the rhythm sounds on some of the earlier albums. Because mm-hmm. I asked them. Because you know, yeah, he, he asked specifically uh, about like the chorus and Bleeding Me or the compression used on TBA. Uh, well, that would have been, been studios up. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's a lot of like, like for instance, it's like there's like all the clean guitars are all AMS chorus. There was no chorus battle. It was a Roland jazz chorus with ED, by the way. Jazz courses sound amazing with EV speakers. They do, uh, don't they? Yeah, they do. That's, killer. that's the big trick. They, and that's yeah. the sound on the Black Album. You got to get the yeah. EVs. And then it's and that's the Billy that's Duffy sound. thing, too, right? The Billy Duffy. Absolutely. And I got one, too. I mean, yeah, that's that's the sound. And that with the jazz chorus and uh, James's guitar, you know, wow. that's uh, EMGs. That's the sound. Almost like a direct sound, isn't it? Like very, just very, very clean. But actually, we use direct too. So it's mm. a combination once again, a combination of direct, the jazz chorus, uh, and and EMS and everything. Yeah, yeah. Just to get that sound, the sound that he wanted, right? That hurt. Uh, mm. Um. So, how are you doing on time, Bob? The wind. The windows are fucking up because I can't have the AC, right? So I'm dying. To it. <laughs> but it's, it's fine. I'm up for the challenge, though. I'm okay. <laughs> um, Somebody was asking in the uh, chat yeah, about so Pete. Pete, what about the the thing when you saw him play? Oh yeah, shit. That's right. I uh, so I saw um, Rockhead in '92 at a club in Vancouver, and it's the loudest show I've ever seen yeah. in my life. Loudest show I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> you were peeling the paint yeah. with, yeah. But I went, I went to see you play, and '92. God, that's a long time ago. <laughs> Twenty-eight yeah. years. Yeah, that was your band. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like about getting back to making making rock music yourself, playing guitar and stuff, like around that period. Yeah, I guess doing the Black Album and some of the other rock albums, I've. I kind of went, you know, because I wasn't partners with Paul, my my childhood buddy and stuff. And I just felt like I wanted to be in a rock band, you know. So we got together and we started playing and stuff. And uh, I did that actually because I was doing the Rockhead album when I was doing the Black album. So after when I got, I get up at like eight o'clock in the morning, rehearse the Rockhead until I came to the studio at two o'clock. So we did that album while I was doing the Black Album, which was insanity. Awesome. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Love it. you know, so it was it was me just being around guys like you know all the guys that I was around, and I realized that you know I'm basically a, a rock guy. You know, that's where I come from, um, and so the Pales were were a different thing, and it was of the time. So anyway, and I took guitar lessons, etc. You know, while I was there too, and and I just got into it, and uh, so Rockhead was good. But what I realized is that really my manager had talked with me, and he said, you know, this is what you do best. Let me manage you, be a producer, and so I listened to him, and uh, that's worked out for you. I miss. <laughs> it's worked out for you. <laughs> um, we've got a question from More Guitars. 
Um, Bob, you still there? Okay. Um, he, he wants to know, have you used any IRs, uh, impulse responses for recording, or is your preference always to use a mic on a cabinet? Uh, well, what I do is I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of demos now. I do a lot of writing like I wrote with Richie. And what I do is I do a lot of demos, uh, with my camper and using, uh, you know, uh, yes. I use camper samples that I've made impulse result. Uh, yeah. Okay. How do you feel? For, because it's so quick to, you know, when you're in the moment, you want to get something done. Yeah. Does it, does it get pretty close funny, for you? You know, certain, uh, never like the same thing. Cause you never get the air, you never get the weight. You know, but, you know, I've, I've got camper profiles, you know, with my, I haven't got my Jose, but I've got Richie Jose and your Friedman and stuff like that. But I never use them on records. And we only use them if, if it's something apart that we, you know, we can't replace or something that's on a demo. Um, but, you know, like I said, this kind of stuff is what I've come to know is, is that like I can put together a track in like a couple hours. I mean, I could never do that with with tape. Do you know it would take me days to put together a demo? Right. And so now I can reach into my own profiles that I've got, and I've got a sound in like basically, wow, well, I don't know, like seconds. Right. right? Like at, when we're doing Richie up in Vancouver, we you know I read about that on Led Zeppelin. One of the heavy sounds are basically a Leslie with the motor unplugged. Right. And you can hear that now. So I've got a great profile of that oh, right, that's that cool. we did. And it's the sound. Right. So I use that all the time. That's cool. Paige was a clever guy, man. Oh, my God. Yeah. Have you it's ever tried time, that? Right? You got to try it. It's the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's Led Zeppelin 1. It's like, yeah, you shook me everything. Is yeah, you think it's a, a Leslie? No speakers moving, like the speakers aren't rotating, right? But it's the yeah, just going. Yeah, through the... just unplug the motor, right? Yeah, you can okay. hear it. I, I swear to God, you stand next to it with that, you plug in a telly, and you go like, "Oh my God, that's the sound." Of course, uh, not Paige, but it is the sound. Yeah. Have you ever met him? Yes, I met him when he was doing Coverdale Page. And uh, he came to see Rockhead and him covered our left because we're too loud. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of amazing. I had the most amazing, one of the most amazing nights of my life. I was, Rockhead warmed up for uh, Bon Jovi in Europe and Jimmy came to visit. I got, I was getting dressed and he was outside and he, they said, somebody's here to see it. It was Paige. And I was shocked. And so, uh, he watched the show. He stood right beside me, the whole show, on center, outside of the stage. We got finished, and Richie and him and I went to this hotel, and we talked about guitars and music with Vernon Reed from Living Color all night. All we talked wow. about was guitars and amps and stuff, and it was one of the most amazing nights of my life. And we became buddies ever since. Every time I see him, he walks over to see me, and I'm going like, "Really?" <laughs> He knows my name. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. An excellent yeah. guy. I yeah. mean, yeah, excellent. Yeah. That's incredible. 
Very cool. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, well, back, right? Well, the, the three guys, just briefly, those three guys were the guys for me, by the way, when I was a kid. It was the Truth album, Led Zeppelin one, and of course, Cream. So, mm-hmm. like, back has always been huge. And when I saw, I got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they played the immigrant song, and Beck did the the vocals, yeah, on his guitar. Mm. All the guitar players at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all our jaws were on the floor. We were going like, "What?" It was <laughs> just the most incredible display playing ever. Uh, anyway, that was super he's cool. so magical. I remember I saw him at uh, House of Blues once here in L.A., and I remember a bunch of guitar players standing a row in the row exactly that. All our our uh, jaws on the ground. He was playing over the rainbow. I remember. And I looked at a great guitar player, Lyle Workman beside me. I said, he's the best guitar player ever, like in the world. And he says, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. We should, we should mention Scott though, by the way. Keith What's Scott, Brian Adams. What a guitar oh, player. Keith, yeah, I asked what you about Keith is unbelievable. Keith Scott, you mentioned Keith. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, Ah, oh, oh man, we gotta hear about Keith. <laughs> no, Keith but no, the uh... oh brother, because he, oh, was fam- he was famous. Go ahead, the Wi-Fi. He was... Oh really? Yeah, yeah we got a little dropout going. You're good now. Everything from okay. Keith Scott on, we didn't hear, but. <laughs> okay, so Keith Scott, he was in a band called Zingo. And he played all the stuff on Blow by Blow, right? No for no. He was everybody's hero, right? So anyway, to make a long story short, but he plays the part that Adams needs. That's what great guitar player is. And he plays it so cleanly. But that guy rips. He can Mm -hmm. play anything. He's incredible. One of the best I've ever heard. Did you run across in Vancouver much? Did you run across um, uh, uh, Too Loud McLeod? <laughs> yes, I know. I knew Brian well. Yeah, such, such an guy. amazing guitar player and amazing tone. This is just for the Canadians because I don't. I don't know if a lot of Americans know who he was, but I mean, I couldn't. Such... I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't believe he got such a great tone with the music I amplified because I used them for a while, but. He got a great tone out of the music man. Remember the, those? Yes, and the folklore was that he used to mic a PA. Like that's how he got the tone on the Headpins albums and stuff. Was he'd he'd mic the amp and then have it coming out of a big old Martin PA that's somewhere in Vancouver and mic the PA. Did you ever hear that story? Because I was that's wondering. That's what he did. Yeah. He, really? Wow. No, I heard it. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess it worked. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. I guess so. I can't imagine it. Yeah. Whatever you got to do, right? Yeah. Hey, Vinny, thank you for the uh, super chat. Really appreciate it. And the kind words. Really appreciate it. Um, we've got another uh, super chat from a Braxis one He says, Bob, can you talk about using a PA in the tracking room when doing drums? Is that to get the performance out of the artist, or does it add something special to the sound? Um, well, that came... That came from uh, from Tommy Lee. It's like when we were cutting drums at Little Mountain. He was one of those bomber seats, and they, you know, it wasn't doing the trick. And 
And, you know, I said, so when you play live, you, you have monitors, right? And he, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, let's just bring in monitors. And while we're cutting, you know, like we're rehearsing and stuff, let's, let's just put the subs behind you. And he goes, that's crazy. And I said, yeah, let's try it. So we did that and filled up the room with the subs. And Tommy was stoked. And that's all that mattered. So, you know, and then the plus of that, it filled the subs through, like it went through all the drums. So mm-hmm. I quickly realized that this is kind of a good thing. So once again, it was satisfying Tommy because he wanted to wave a rap song he heard a rap song and he says i want that kick drum sound so he pushed me and i went let's just fucking do it so we got a monitor and we put him behind the drums it didn't work in front so i put him behind so he could play the way he plays live and he was stoked and and then i just dealt with it but it ended up being a positive and that's what i did on the black album too right it's just you have to you can't add too much you got to be careful because I definitely did it too much and then I had to dial it back. But um, mm-hmm. I know it's insane, but once again, no engineer in their right mind would ever do that There's <laughs> because of the rules. And, you know, too bad. Break yeah. the rules. Break I'm the rules. Exactly. Too fucking bad. Uh, we got another question, uh, and this has been asked from Push 22 Frets. How hard do you push your Neve uh, pre's when, when uh, printing? I, uh, how hot, how low? Um, I, that's what he asked. Um, uh, the, the, the needs that I use 1081s, I don't use, you know, I use the way I don't push them to be quite honest. I mean, I get the level that I need and, you know, in the tape days we pushed it, you know, we, we were at plus four. So there was some questions on the tape but with, uh, with digital, I just make sure it's clean. The knee, the sound of the Neve is a beautiful thing. It's got plenty of punch because of the transformers in it and stuff. So you really don't need to push it. I'd rather be able to do that afterwards, you know, um, so I have more control. I mean, the key to the key to like I made a lot of mistakes when I was, you know, I did a prison album, a band, Canadian band, and I heard that Queen, you know, overloaded, right? So I printed all the mixes really, really hot. And basically, George Marino at, at Sterling saved my ass because it was it was horrible. It sounded horrible when we went to master. So I learned my lesson. It's like you gotta you gotta go with your ears. So whatever whatever works for your ears, that's where you should be. Yeah. So, uh, like in other words, I don't do anything that's in theory. Like I heard about things and I try things, but I usually go back to these sound great when they're clean. And, you know, there's plenty of level and plenty of harmonic distortion in them that you don't need to push it. But you can push it to get a sound. Mm-hmm. I've done that before. Like, you know, Black Dog. You know, then you push through to LA uh, 1176s. Mm-hmm. That's Black Dog, mm-hmm. direct. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah. There you go. So basically, whatever works for the artist or the sound you're going for, it doesn't matter what it might be. Obviously, you could. It's like, hey, you know, no, I, it, I remember, it really I remember George Lynch. George Lynch told me a story that he was recording a record and um, with Michael Wagner, and and they had this uh, old little four track Porta Studio, and he'd plug this guitar into the Porta Studio, yeah, 
and then take come out of the Porter studio into the front of the Marshall or whatever amp he was using at the time. And there was this sound. It would, it would preamp the Marshall, and there was this sound that he got. And they were hiding the Porter studio under the console and stuff so no one would <laughs> see it and all this stuff. But it was a tone. It was a tone that they got, and it was a tone. And it's like, yeah, well, you, that's not normal, but who cares about normal? Let's, that's the sound. It's just yeah, like, it's really like, yeah, you know, it's it's like Brian May, you know, putting the Echoplex in front of AC30s, you yeah. know, and even the Jimmy Page thing with the Coronado. I mean, the, the sound was not the same until I plugged in the, the Echoplex, the tube Echoplex, and then sure. that was the sound. And he probably put it because he liked the sound of the Echoplex. He didn't care about the hiss, right? He just wanted yeah. that sound. And it warmed up the, the tally. That's why it sounded fat. It mm -hmm. sort of brings back something that I've always said. Um, so I've built people's guitar rigs for a million years. And um, when someone comes to me and they have this concept, this thing they've been using, you know, I, I use this pedal into this, into this, into this, and that gets me my sound. Well, I take a listen and, and you know, if it's a great sound, you're, you're not going to change it. Don't change it. You know, it's like, no, you can't do that. You can't put your delay first and your wall last. Uh, why not? <laughs> <laughs> if it gets you the sound that you like, you can put it in any order that yeah. gets you that tone. It, it makes no difference. It, it's, exactly. it's like all the great guitar players that had these signature tones did some sort of unique, unique um, thing. Like Pete interviewed Ty Tabor from King's X and, you know, and he's talking about his, his lab series amp that he used and, you know, his, his Fender elite guitar with the preamp in it. And, and the whole thing made up the tone and Pete bought one, of course, right after that interview. He bought one. I'm like, aren't you going to get a preamp from the elite Fender elite guitar too? So you really get the whole thing. Oh man, I've been on reverb to buy the damn guitar so it, many he's times. He's finding the tone just like you, Bob. You buy that yeah. by you know buy the tone. Well, because it's a thrill, right? When you plug in and do the whole. I mean, I did a video here on treble boosters a while ago. And John Shanks lent me an old AC30, and I got the treble booster, and I got Shanks's uh, Brian May guitar back there, and I got to plug it all in and see if it actually sounds like that. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's the hobbyist part of it that's Absolutely. really fun. But, yeah. But, but to your point, I think getting yeah. your own sound. I mean, when we think about everybody from Blackmore to, uh, you know, that, well, you mentioned Bronson. I mean, like Blackmore plugged into a tape deck into the front of a major. That's right. He had a Kai. Well, and, and in the early days, AC30, right? And sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, and it just sounded so damn unique. And yeah. now it's like, what's the perfect pedal order? And it's like, well, you know what? It's like the perfect whatever pedal you order. like. Yeah, when you plug them in, and it sounds like you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't believe in 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 when I build rigs. Yeah. When I, when I build rigs for people, I don't believe in, Go ahead. you know, dictating what they should have. Yeah. It's, well, what are you using? That's a cool sound. <laughs> okay. That's okay. You know, like I learned long ago that what appears, what you think is going to be a horrible sound, you know, might not be with that person. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, there are certain yeah. people. I remember I worked with a band years ago uh, called uh, uh, One Thousand Mona Lisas, 
signed artist. He brings me his rack and he has, yep. he had that, he had a, like a boogie triaxis preamp and a Mesa boogie power amp and a ART smart EQ. I don't remember those from the eighties. And then he had another pedal path, like three pedals into a silver face twin with JBLs. <laughs> the silver face right. twin with a master volume, the worst <laughs> possible twin ever <laughs> that it, when it distorted, it just sounded like, just breaking I can't even imagine. <laughs> but it was kind of a punk band and when he played the combination of this triaxis with that silver face twin with whatever pedals he had going the combination of the two and you heard him do what his music it was amazing it was great mm-hmm. and I, i'm like well I there you go point on that i'm like i'm yeah. never going to judge what someone is doing until i really hear what they're doing with it yeah right that's true it all fits within the context right um we have a super chat from more guitars uh no problem thank you for sending in your question we really appreciate it and the super chat um there was also another super chat that i'm just going back here from uh no that was already asked that one uh, did I miss it? Um, oh, here from Colton Knowles. Thank you for the super chat, Bob. Anything special? And you may have already answered this. Uh, anything special to get the sad but true rhythm sound? Was it the same Jose Marshall with the mic setup with guitar used? Anything that you can provide on that? He said the sound seems bigger on that. Um, uh, well, the, the the sound is just because it's it's down to D. I mean, that's what changes the same amp setup but you know like i said you, the the majority of james's sound is the the, the mesa boogie right the uh, like i said jose was the addition that added flavor to it but make no mistake it's it was his rack uh which is the mark three right was mark it a three, three and he had of course the ad no it's a three Okay. It was a three, and it was like, and he had the also had the ADA graphic, along with the graphic on the Mesa. You oh. know, I mean, once again, oh yeah, another graphic. That I think I just spilled it. Spilled yeah, the beam. like another graphic. Like he shaped, he tweaked. Yeah, wow. yeah. The, the you know the ADA ones, remember? Sure. Right? Okay. Those, the digital ones. Oh. Yeah. So he tweaked. You take further more of the sound, right? Um, In the effect loop of the so amplifier, along with would it be in the effect you loop? Use BBE. What? Yeah, it would be in the effect loop. Yeah. Okay. And a BBE. See? No, <laughs> they 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 originally had that. Like that, okay. they came in with that, but then they ended up using the ADA one. Yeah, so That's totally sculpted it. So there so, you go. Yeah, that can be a big, a big change, obviously, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're approaching the two-hour mark. Uh, go ahead. You have a question? Oh, okay. Um, I was just going to say maybe we should. Uh, we've exhausted a, a lot of all the questions here. Dave, Pete, do you guys have anything else you want to ask? Or, I mean, I'm. Uh, 
I think I've got to, to just about just about everything on my list here. Um, this was fantastic. It was, yeah, it's been yeah, one. So, so um, what was it like to work with the offspring? Um, I kind of know this answer, but <laughs> oh, it, it's not the best. It's yeah, the best. I'm having the time of my life. You know, it's like. Uh, it's it's just the best and not only that i got because they have uh friedman prototypes don't they that you build for them we've used they them. have um they have a uh a, a naked amp that i made for a while that was the the duct tape thing right yeah yeah that's a, that's a whole different thing. sort yeah, of amp yeah. yeah yeah i've been there yeah, noodles noodles is like swears by them yeah, definitely. Yeah, I go, them. I go pretty far back with them at this point. Um, uh, I've been through a few rec, you know. Uh, uh, before you came on board, I was, I was around for quite a few records, and um, yeah, it was always, uh, you know, they. It's funny. I, I never, early on, I never really loved the band um, until I got to know them. And then I really love the band. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, you know. I got working with them really pretty early on, and 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 you know, I got I traveled with them. I even filled in as a tech occasionally with them, and and they're awesome guys. And don't go drinking with them though. Yeah, your liver might not be the same, right, <laughs> as it was before. <laughs> uh, we've got another super chat, Bob. What? five amp models would you consider timeless benchmarks for versatility and tones? I guess for the Kemper. I think we got a freeze. No, I don't think so. I think he might mean amps. Oh yeah. Five amp models. Okay. I mean, I think he, I think he's, I think he's referring to amplifiers. Okay. You might be right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I hope. Mm -hmm. Models of amplifiers as opposed to... Yeah, five amp models, not profiles. Okay. But we lost Bob there for a second. Yeah, I think we're still lost him. We've done pretty well, all things considered, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. Oh, Went. he just disappeared. He might come back. He might come back. If that was the end, this has been great. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. Uh, hopefully, he'll click the link back so we can say goodbye. Uh, but what amazing stories yeah i mean just so i'm gonna have to go back and rewatch this myself <laughs> you know oh my god you can, you, and you can get so many more stories if you know really oh I, no. I feel that we just touched on on what really could be talked about yeah but um uh, i love the uh the chat <laughs> that, that makes me feel good what's that dude what uh, the, the the person uh, that asked the super chat chat didn't mean amplifiers. He re ah. he, he fixed that. <laughs> yeah, Bob's got this great, wonderful, like down to earth Canadian thing that I love. So it's yeah. terrific. Yeah, I remember nice I, the first time I met him. I, I was uh, he 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 wandered into my shop. Oh yeah, I think he was across the street or something. He wa wandered into the shop. That's great. And <laughs> You know, he's like, just, I forgot how even he struck up the conversation. It's like. I appreciate it, Bob. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Bob. Really appreciate it. All right. Well, have a great night. Take care. Bye-bye. I guess that's it, guys.
<laughs> um, his phone overheated because it was so hot in his car. <laughs> his phone yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. So it's there you go. Bob Rock, uh, 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 amazing producer, runs a bunch of uh, software and Neve consoles and everything, but but his phone's overheating. <laughs> yeah. Derailed due to technical difficulties. Um, uh, but he, he's a really nice guy, and how how nice. I'm is. sorry we didn't get to your 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 question with Bob on his five favorite amps. Seemed like he really favored that Jose he owns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, I wish he could have answered all that, but uh, he seems to have every amp. So, I'll take a picture of the question and see if I can get him to answer it. Yeah. You know, it sounded like I mean he's really got an appreciation for like all across the board right like dumbbells and 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 then your amplifiers friedman if you know yeah. it's two different mm-hmm. camps but he, it sounds like and and he talked about the 310 uh bandmaster yeah. and yeah. Yeah. and obviously using a leslie like it sounds like if it's a great classic guitar sound like he's across the board he's he's got an interest in it you know yeah or any kind of unique guitar tone that he collected basically like he said he collect guitar tones not necessarily guitars mm. and amps he collected right right tones so yeah. he, you know, he was searching. So what did pay, you know, what did um, um, Pete Townsend use? Well, it was the Gretsch with the 310 Bandmaster with, you know, you know, finding the right combination or Page with the Coronado and the, and the Tele and the uh, two Becaplex and, you know. Thinking like a producer. I mean, this reminds me of friends of ours like Shanks or, you know, that are. Well, yeah, thinking like a producer, but don't, don't, don't sort of, at least I know I do, I would collect the tone i i would say hey when i was a kid it's like how do, how do they get that tone yeah and you know i want that amp that'll do that tone or the combination of pedals that'll do totally. that tone. and I, I still to this day you know and i've collected a lot of it over time yeah um you know and i know what my favorite amps are now i know exactly sure what the meat and potatoes of you know amps are but it's interesting, right? Because even you, like, we got the L5 here that I bought <laughs> and, and plugged well, it in. Well, like, great. I mean, I never heard one in person. Right. So there's so, still discovery. There's know? still the cause, discovery. Well, I, you know, the funny thing is I worked, uh, I did um, a couple couple amps that stood out that I was thinking of recently. Um, I did a repair for George Lynch on an old Music Man HD something or another. Hmm. Right? And which is a, a solid state preamp with a tube power section. Right, right. And uh, and and they're they're odd amps and but when you plugged in when I plugged into this one when we finished it it was just like oh man I I might need to get one of these. This, this hmm. sounds amazing. Like Well, then we touched to- on we touched on that talking to Bob about the cuz that was Brian McLeod's yeah. thing. Like he used to run yeah. one of those on 10 with a strap. Two strap. And the other thing was when I had, uh, did you see when I had uh, the Neil Young amp in the shop? Oh, you, remember I was joking trying to pick it up. Baldwin Exterminator, yeah. This Baldwin amp Exterminator is, is up to there and it has one handle on the top. It's got a handle on the top and it weighed <laughs> like, like 100. No wheels or nothing. You know, what are you going to do with that? How right. are you going to pick that up? Who, what? <laughs> I said yeah. you need the Game of Thrones, like one of the giants from Game of Thrones right. or something, you know, to, to come and pick it up for you. He's a roadie, you know. I mean, but, how many speakers were in it? It had like oh, it's like six. Yeah, like fifteen and yeah, like four. two, like two fifteens, two like twelves or tens or something, and then two like little like high frequency driver kind of things. 
so damn that weird. Solid state amp. But I remember when we fixed the issue that was with it. This was Neil Young's amp, right? Baldwin Exterminator. When we <laughs> when we fixed the issue with it, that that it was doing, we plugged it in, and it was like this huge, semi broken up clean tone, mm -hmm. like cool. but broken up in a cool way. Like yeah. it, it was like with this reverb and trem and stuff, and and like when you heard it, you're like, oh my god, I need one of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. this is stupid, but I want one. This is stupid, <laughs> but I want one. Well, that's like the L5. Stupid because it looks so cool, you know. Yeah. And 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 you know that I think um, it's great. And, and it's interesting because again, that's that's something he uses on a regular basis, along with his Tweed Deluxe and and right. I think something else. And you know, it's it's on at various times, and it it sounds. God, it sounds amazing. You know. So, you remember when you were working on uh, Mike Campbell's rig? And yeah, he had the whole thing set up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so he's got a, it's a silver Princeton and a tweed deluxe, or yeah. right? Tweed deluxe? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And uh, and then the Vibratone cabinet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can turn them all on at once. And mm -hmm. that shit sounded amazing. Like, that yeah, was that was amazing. And, and, you know, the so, yeah. you know, sometimes things just pop out at you, you know? Like, there's these unique, weird things that are cool. Um, yeah, he's he's a good example of a guy that made a tone that's like got all this, you know, this 